Hey, listeners. Glenn here, jumping in at the top of the show to let you know that in the future where we live, we're just about to wrap up our coverage of Wolf's first novel, Operation Ares. And so that means that we're going to take our vote to determine which stories we cover between Operation Ares and The Fifth Head of Cerberus next week. The polls will be open between January 7th and January 12th. So if you want to participate, head over to Patreon at patreon.com slash claytemplemedia. And many of you have already joined and we're immensely grateful for your support. And we're really excited to see which stories you choose. But now, let's get on with the show. Welcome back to the Gene Wolfe Literary Podcast by Clay Temple Media, where we discuss the work of the great science fiction writer Gene Wolfe, one story at a time. I'm Brandon Buddha. And I'm Glenn McDorman. This episode, we're talking about the short story, Sonia, Crane Wesselman, and Kitty, originally published in Orbit 8 in 1970. And reprinted in the story collection, Stories from the Old Hotel. This story is a weird one, Glenn. I don't know if you felt that <laughs> way about it. It takes place in the future, the near future, and it feels like uh, Gene Wolfe is really testing out his views on some political issues, maybe telling a bit of a fable here. It's unclear to me exactly what's going on with this story, so I hope we can clarify in the discussion, but why don't you take us through the plot in the meantime, Glenn? Gladly. So, Brandon, as you say, this is something of a strange story. The story takes place in the future, but is consciously and explicitly addressed to Wolfe's readers in 1970. And he assures us that although his characters are old in the story, right now, in 1970, they are around the same age as Wolf's readers. Yeah, it's a very odd narrative choice. And it's kind of a story that ought to have a stronger framing device than it does. And I'm a little bit baffled by the choice. But I think, I think as we move through the discussion, we'll be able to determine a little bit about who the intended audiences, but it's very unclear up front and pretty muddled throughout the story as well, I think. And my feeling, at least, Brandon, was that even though this story is ad- this story is addressed to an audience, it felt much vaguer to me, even than the other story we've read recently that is addressed to an audience, which is The Island of Dr. Death and other stories, where the audience is actually very specifically, very explicitly, just the generic you. It's you, the individual reader holding this book now. But that felt like a literary device with a much clearer purpose than this one does. This felt like it it constantly was taking me out of the story rather than inviting me into it. There's some helpful resources out there that address some of these issues. Uh, Mark Aramini in particular has some light to shine on it. But I also think there's a little bit more going on that Wolf doesn't make as clear as he needs to for this story to be successful. Well, I will look forward to you unpacking that for us in the discussion, Brandon. And for now, I will get on with the recap and let listeners know that there are two characters in this story and that this story is about their relationship. First, we meet Sonia. Sonia is an elderly woman who lives entirely on her universal basic income. And Wolf pauses here to talk about this social arrangement, the universal basic income. And he highlights that conservative politicians think this income is very large while liberal politicians believe it to be insufficient. And Wolf points out here that Sonia proves them both wrong. She does live on this income, but only because she lives in a small apartment and does not spend money on anything for pleasure. One thing that's odd to me about this this decision to 
include universal basic income as a world-building technique is that he does it specifically as it relates to the elderly, which is like how Social Security works. It's a really interesting choice. And I just I just want to point that out, that this is already kind of the case for elderly people. Yeah, this I don't think this actually really would have been that much of, of, a, of a sort of near future sci-fi concept. It really is just the way Social Security functions, at least for the elderly. I think if this was a story about people in their 30s or 40s, it would have felt a little bit different. And I do just want to point out here before we move on that elsewhere in the story, Wolf also shows us that she that, that Sonia perhaps doesn't eat very much either. So this this is not money that goes very far. It does not quite feel like a livable wage to me. There's also a very odd way that Wolf describes her apartment and her living situation. And he seems to be fixated on how clean she is. And I just will have a question about that when we get to it. Well, and we can talk now, Brandon, about the way that Wolf describes Sonia uh, herself, her person. Although she's elderly now, Sonia was once beautiful. And, and Wolf here asks us to imagine how the actress Debbie Reynolds will look when she attends the inauguration of John John Kennedy. And if we can get that image in our mind, then we will know what Sonia looks like. It's such a weird note in this story. John John would have been very young, in 1970 when the story was written. And I think the point of including John John Kennedy or John F. Kennedy Jr., as as he's also known, and Debbie Reynolds, is to key us into who the audience of this story is. This is someone who is obsessed with tabloid and celebrity culture. And we should point out here, Brandon, that Debbie Reynolds, of course, was a a famous actress. Uh, She's famous for our generation because she's the mother of Carrie Fisher. And of course, very sadly, just last year, Debbie Reynolds and Carrie Fisher died on the same day, you know, hours apart from each other. I guess that was Christmas Eve or Christmas Day that that happened. That's right. She was also a fantastic actress coming out of the kind of the great musicals of uh, and the studio system of the 40s and 50s in Hollywood as well. Uh, Just one more thing, too, Brandon, before we move on. I just want to point out that this is our second story in a row with a mention of the Kennedys. We had it in IBEM as well. Well, this is right following on Robert F. Kennedy's assassination. And I think that, you know, he was the progressive presidential candidate in that election or in that primary, we should say. And I think probably someone with Wolf's politics, as we've been able to glean them from his story so far, at least, would have seen his assassination actually as, I think, something of a of a crushing blow for his own politics. Yeah, that's a really excellent point. Uh, and that might be part of why the Kennedys are mentioned here in this, in part of this sort of long preamble to an actual story that involves also talking about a universal basic income and other sorts of progressive political ideas. Yeah, I wouldn't have thought that Wolf would be using uh, John John Kennedy here as a symbol of hope <laughs> in this story. For me, it reads a little bit more cynically. Well, let's get to the cynical part here now, Brandon, and introduce our second character, Crane Wesselman, who is a wealthy businessman and also a widower. He doesn't leave his house much, and his former business partner worries about him. The partner invites Crane Wesselman to play bridge with him and his wife, which, of course, means that they need to find a fourth player. 
So the partner's wife phones a friend to get the name of an unattached woman of a similar age, and through an accident, the partner's wife invites Sonia instead of the woman who is intended. And Brandon, I think this is all meant to be funny. It's a comedy of errors that a woman of a much lower social class should be invited to the home of a wealthy couple to be set up romantically with their wealthy friend. But it didn't strike me as funny. No, nor I. And I think that it's possible that Gene Wolfe was struggling to find a way to introduce these people. And he needed them to be from opposite spectrums of social class, but just couldn't think of a way why and he doesn't tease out enough of the comedy of errors and the farce of the situation for it to really work to be a theme of the story and i i'd love to hear from our listeners this is a point where i'd really love to hear about this mistake what's the real reason that it's in the story well in any case the evening progresses and crane wesselman comes to really like sonia and they both return to the partner's house to play bridge again And at this point, it looked like they might start a relationship. But before a third game of bridge can be arranged, the partner's wife dies. And Wolf tells us a little something of what life is like for each of our characters here in the following months. Crane Wesselman stops leaving his house and seldom even changes from his pajamas to his dressing gown. Sonia accepts that the romance has failed before it begun, but often wonders what her life might have been like if the romance had actually blossomed. Yeah, I want to read this section, actually, because I think there's a curious detail in here that we we may want to pay attention to. Wolf writes this about Sonia's reflections. Sonia had never formed the habit of protesting the decisions of fate, although once, when she was much, much younger, she had assisted a male friend in distributing mimeographed handbills, complaining of the indignity of death and the execratory functions. A short girl with blonde braids and chino pants, you saw her. But that had only been a favor. Whatever the handbill said, she accepted those things. She accepted losing Crane Wesselman too. But at night, when she was trying to go to sleep, she would sometimes think of Crane Wesselman among the things that might have been. And what I want to point out in there, not only do I think it's actually a pretty decent passage in this story, um, I do want to point out that the audience is directly addressed in this passage and they're pointing out somebody that whomever the narrator is speaking to actually saw. So they're, this is maybe the occasion for the story here buried in this little passage. That's a really great observation, Brandon. I, I think I had taken that more abstractly than you are. And so I'll, I'll look forward to, I assume you want to unpack that a little bit more in the discussion. I'll look forward to hearing about that. For sure. (laughs) (laughs) Well, four months pass, and then Crane Wesselman calls Sonia to invite her to his house for dinner. He seems not to know that she is too poor to own a vehicle, and she declines to tell him. So when the evening comes, she has to take a bus. Now, this bus is actually a helicopter, Wolf tells us, but to the people of the future, that's what they mean when they say the word bus. When the bus drops her off, she still has to walk a considerable way And here we get some fun details, Brandon, about what cultural historians like to call the history of the future. Buses have been replaced by helicopters, but Sonia still has to carry a paper map with her. And of course, the future, as it has actually turned out, is inverted. We don't carry paper maps with us anymore, but our buses are still just buses. (laughs) That's right. There's a lot of great details here as well. There's a 
extensive CCTV network were given to believe as cameras are attached by streetlights. And Sonia has a firm belief that those cameras have some beneficent guardian that is watching them and who is looking over her, which is an odd, odd relationship to have with authority at this point in this future. And and I'm going to want to talk about what kind of future Wolf is describing here. But even more interestingly is as she approaches Crane Wesselman's house, his driveway or walkway is lighted with gas lanterns and gas lights. Yeah, that's right. I think that detail there, Brandon, is on his private property. And so it's an aesthetic choice. And in fact, I think we're sort of told it's an aesthetic choice that has something to do with his wife, his deceased wife. That's right. It's just a really interesting contrast in kind of the hyper-technical and this very old form of lighting. And I just want to I want to go back to the comment that you made, Brandon, about the police cameras, because her reaction, as you say, is unexpected, at least from, I think, our perspective, certainly from my perspective, that she is concerned that because she looks like she's a little bit lost, she's got a map and doesn't appear to know where she's going. She's worried that the police will think she's in trouble and she doesn't want them to worry about her or to waste police resources so she waves and smiles at the camera this is not the feeling or this is not the attitude i would have towards police cameras you know if they were in our neighborhood yeah it's it's a typical picture of a dystopic future and here we're seeing somebody who is maybe oblivious to the social impact of the decisions that people have made that has made the world around her the way it is Well, Sonia at last arrives at Crane Wesselman's house, and there is a brass plate on the front door that says, See Wesselman and Kitty. And Kitty is spelled K-I-T-T-E-E. And Wolf says here in this moment that Sonia knew. The new is in italics. It is significant. But Wolf doesn't tell us what, precisely, Sonia knew or what this meant to her. Nonetheless, this information is enough to make Sonia want to turn around and go home, if only she weren't so tired from the journey there. Sonia rings the doorbell, and Kitty opens the door. Kitty is a tall, naked girl who looks a good deal like Julie Newmar, who, of course, played Catwoman in the Adam West Batman television show. Sonia doesn't like this thing, Wolf tells us, but she invites Kitty to smell her fingers before instructing Kitty to take her to Master. Yeah, I found this line to be absolutely hilarious uh, in the way it was written because Wolf does a lot to signal to the reader or to his audience, I should say, that something is off. So Sonia knows something when she sees Kitty's name on the door. And then Wolf tells us again that when Kitty opens the door, Sonia knew that it was Kitty, but you or I might not know that it was her. And then is this reveal is... Kitty opens the door and Sonia says in a level, friendly voice, Good evening, Kitty. My name is Sonia. Would you like to smell my fingers? <laughs> I just thought that was really funny. Yeah, I mean, it does. I mean, I've told those jokes in middle school for sure. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. So, yeah, and I have a lot of questions about, about this description, but I imagine that you've got some good discussion points that you'll want to guide us through when we get to the end of our, uh, of our recap here. So I will, I will carry on with my part of the arrangement this evening. <laughs> Crane Wesselman appears, shaved and maybe bathed, uh, but dressed still in a robe and slippers, although they are new, they are fresh, they are clean. He hasn't cooked, but he has ordered a microwave meal for each of them. And Brandon, I wondered how you read that passage. For me, this seemed 
like being a bad host, being an un- unattentive and maybe disinterested host. But I wonder if in 1970, getting ordering in a frozen meal that you can microwave was fancy and actually no, pulling I, out the stops? I, I, no, I don't think so. I think Wolf's doing a lot of work here to to make us feel disgusted by Crane Wesselman and the situation that he's living in. We already know he's a bit of a recluse, but what we don't know is that he doesn't clean. And he has this housekeeper. Well, we don't really know what Kitty is. I'd, upon the first read, assumed she was like a housekeeper, but she's clearly not. And we'll find out what she is in just a moment. Mm-hmm. But um, he has leaves his plates around and there's a smell in the house. And um, Sonia thinks it's Kitty, but there's just this level of uncleanliness and clutter that Wolf builds into the prose here. And I think it's pretty significant to point out the difference in the way Crane Wesselman and Sonia live, especially as I mentioned before, Wolf goes through a lot of pain to point out that Sonia's home is very clean. Right. And Crane Wesselman doesn't really even seem, even though he's invited her here, he doesn't really seem all that interested in her uh, as a as an individual human, as a as a person here in this moment, e- at dinner they sit side by side. But it's it, it's so that he can show Sonia a magazine called Friends, which advertises pets like Kitty. And these pets are some sort of genetic mix of a human and an animal. And Crane Wesselman explains here that although he calls Kitty Kitty, it's not clear that she is feline and may very well be a dog or a gibbon or some other type of animal altogether. Yeah, this interaction here is really strange, and it's also another thing I want to read. So Crane Wesselman has invited Sonia over, and and Kitty is sitting with Sonia, and Sonia is stroking Kitty's hair after they've eaten their microwave dinners. (laughs) And then Crane Wesselman gets out a copy of a monthly magazine called Friends, as you said. It's put out for people who owned them or were interested in buying these Friends, and Crane Wesselman sits next to Sonia. He turns pages for her. He points out ads of the best producers of these things. And then he reads, bizarrely, some poetry that's at the end of the column. And this seems to be the occasion that he invited her over for. It's like sharing your POG collection or something <laughs> absurd like that. <laughs> yeah, it's it's sad. Uh, and, and of course, it all disturbs Sonia. Um, and at this point, she begins to visit Crane Wesselman about once a week over the next year, though they never marry, as Sonia had once fantasized. Near his death, Crane Wesselman tells Sonia that he has instructed his executor to purchase a male friend for Kitty so that she won't be lonely after he dies. And Sonia considers here that the purchase of a friend costs more than she lives on in an entire year. One week, when Crane Wesselman hasn't called, Sonia takes it upon herself to visit his house. She finds him dead, with Kitty having eaten a portion of his left leg. Sonia locates some food in the freezer and prepares it for Kitty, and then wonders if Crane Wesselman might not have left her a small legacy after all. And that's the end of this tale. Yeah, it's an odd end to the tale, though I think I have an answer to why it ends this way. And and I hope through our discussion that we can unpack the meaning of this story, because I think there's a moral Wolf is trying to communicate to us as readers of Sonia, Crane Wesselman, and Kitty. 
So, Glenn, before we really get to the theme of this story, which I think is the glue that's going to hold everything together, it's the rug that really ties the room together (laughs) in this story, um, I want to kind of circle around it by backfilling in some context and maybe ask some other questions that might help us really understand what Wolf is trying to do with this story, because I think it's pretty unclear to both of us, and I hope we can at least either figure it out through conversation or create a starting point for somebody else. So I want to read actually what Wolf wrote for the introduction to stories from the old hotel where he, where he explains what each of these stories is going about or the occasion under which he wrote it. And here's what he wrote about this story. He says, Sonia Crane Wesselman and Kitty is a magazine story in a special sense. In those days, I was crazy about dogs and I used to subscribe to Dog World, devoted to purebreds. When I had read 20 issues or more, it struck me that models were never employed to sell the dogs advertised in its pages, as they are to peddle cars, perfume, and virtually every other product. Or rather, that the models were the dogs pictured in the ads, the champion fox terriers, rottweilers, or whatever. For a long time, I'd realized that the most attractive thing in most ads, was the model. So there's some real sleight of hand going on with the pros here. When he kind of muddles what the word model means or who it's referring to, is it the dog or the person it's advertising? And so, Glenn, one, I want to ask you, does this introductory comment help you gain any insight about what Wolf is trying to do in this story? So only a little bit, but I'll, I'll tell you what this makes me think of. So certainly, I think the way that I read this story, or the thing that sticks out to me that I remembered about having read this story you know, a decade ago, I remembered all of that first page of the story, all of the kind of the, the near future setup, the universal basic income, the police cameras, the helicopter buses. And I remembered the genetic manipulation, but I, to me, that didn't, that's not the thing that was the feature of the story for me. Clearly, it is. It's in the title. It's not Sonia Crane Wesselman and helicopter bus. It's Sonia Crane Wesselman and Kitty. That's what we're meant to meant to get from this story. But it was never the thing that stuck out to me. And I think that having hearing these words from his own comment on the story, his own reflection on the writing of this story, I don't know, fifteen years or so after its first publication, helps me zero in on that as being the point. And I think this was also the first time that I had read this story, Brandon, where I realized that, of course genetically modified animals, cat people, feline people, feature again in Wolf's work. That These are a feature of the Book of the New Sun as well, and that here he is thinking about it. And so this really changes where my own focus really ought to go on the story, but I'm not sure that I have any other sort of comment than that. Yeah, I don't think there's much there for anybody who's trying to solve the puzzle using Wolf's own words, and I think Wolf does that always on purpose. He never answers questions for his readers if no, he can help it. He's not trying to help. <laughs> right, no. right. <laughs> he's trying to make the mystery harder and 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 I love him for it. Yeah, oh, it's so it's so much fun. But but you brought up that uh this isn't the first time that genetically modified organisms or people or hybrids of animals and cats show up. This is also the first time I think where Wolf is really playing with future history. So the next question I want to ask is who is this story for, or what is the occasion for it being told? I hinted a little bit about what I thought the occasion of the story was in the during your recap, Glenn, but I want to go through a few things and see if we can answer the question. 
Who is it for? Who is it being told to? And why is it being told to them? So in the first paragraph, we have the narrator indicating to the reader or the listener that they have special information about the future. And we're getting a story about that. And as I said, I think this is the first time Wolf uses this technique as a writer. That's really just interesting to me as a reader. Yeah, we've had near future stories before, but this is kind of the first time where it's explicitly stated that this is going to be our own lifetime. That for us, the reader, this we are going to experience this future. And in fact, sort of strangely, right? It's not only that we are going to experience this future, we are experiencing it now. Yeah, absolutely. But the, I think the thing that really strikes me is that this is the first time I think that the narrator is living in the present and narrating about the future. And I just want to say that that's a technique that Wolf repeats in his in his oeuvre. <laughs> so here I think is a, a point we might quibble about, Glenn, um, when I brought it up in the recap. I mentioned that the storyteller is with someone and they see a girl out in the street distributing pamphlets about the indignity of death and, the ex- and excretory functions. And... For me, that for some reason is the occasion for the story being told. So there's something that the audience is experiencing or the narrator's audience is is experiencing in relation to this site that is causing our narrator to tell the story about the future. That's how I read it. Mark Aramini makes the point, I think helpfully as well, that the story is being told to a pop culture obsessed child. Like he's, that's kind of his reading. I think it's pretty good. I think that could very well be the case. This is like a grandfather and a child and their grandchild may be out and the child sees something and the grandfather's trying to tell some sort of fable. That's a potential reading I have. And then we have this real fascination with the outcome of the commingling of celebrity and politics that seems to be a part of the story that's being told here. So Glenn, I don't know if that's going to help us answer the question of of who the story is for and why it's being told, but I don't know. What do you think, Glenn? I want to elaborate on my sort of interpretation of that line, or not interpretation, just the way my reading, the way that I I read it. I read this abstractly, not as a, you saw Sonia, but as a, we've all seen someone like this person. That's how I read it. That's not what the grammar says. I mean, it does literally say, you saw her. You saw Sonia, but I read it more abstractly uh, that it was that we all know someone like this. Yeah. Does the possibility that he's actually saying like, this is the story of this woman who's doing this now, who's obsessed with these pamphlets and kind of easily swayed by whatever pamphlet she's handing out is somehow of concern to the listener of the story. Yeah. I mean, I think this is a marvelous reading. This really changes the story for me. I like the idea that this is a fable. That this is there's a moral to this story. That this is, uh, I like this idea that this is a grandfather talking to his, I don't know, uh, middle school aged granddaughter trying to warn her off caring about insignificant nonsense, I suppose. But if we're going to carry that forward or, or or carry that through our reading of the rest of the story, I'll just flip the question back to you, Brandon. How does this affect or alter or I, I don't highlight your reading of? all of this information on the first page about the universal basic income and uh, later about the police cameras. What is, what is this grandfather trying to tell his, his granddaughter here in 1970? It's a question I think that we can really tie up when we talk about 
the theme of this story. And I want to hold off on that for just two more minutes because I want to talk about and really explore the world building elements of the story. So maybe we can talk, we can understand the kind of world that Wolf is painting for us before we really nail down the theme and see if that theme ties everything together. So the this question is really, what kind of world is Wolf describing to us? And what can we take away from this vision of the future? So we've already discussed helicopters as public transportation. There's cameras on streetlights that are monitored by police. There's um, universal basic income and like kind of extensive governmental safety nets, at least. And then we have the contrast of old and new technology side by side, which is kind of a picture of a society in some sort of transition. So I just wanted to point that out. Glenn, do, are there any other world building notes that I missed? Or if if not, you know, what do you think that this vision of the future is really about? Yeah, I think you've hit all of the, the, the key world building points here, Brandon. And I think this is a great question of, I think in our recap, we talked a little bit about how this is both, there are utopian elements here and dystopian elements. And for me, I read this largely as dystopian. And I think this says more about me than it says about the text, right? Well, I think the one thing we left out of the world building thing that I don't know why we forgot it is Kitty, which is like you throw in genetic splicing and it's a dystopia, right? Oh yeah, right, right. Sorry. In fact, I don't think I heard that that was left off your list when you were when you were doing it. I apologize for that. I'm I'm letting letting the I, listeners down. I totally forgot as well. And then it, just as you were talking, I'm like, oh yeah, there's also genetic splicing, right? And I think so. And that is for me that was a big part of the dystopia, not because genetic splicing is something we shouldn't be doing or that that is inherently scary it's how much he paid for his pet that's that's where it's dystopian to me that to me this is even though this is a world that has a basic universal income that there's a subsistence income for every human being in the united states of america and the buses are helicopters and there's police cameras this gulf between rich and poor to me is that's dystopia that 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 as long as there is that gap there it cannot be a positive future yeah not only does that gulf still remain which on one level i think i'm comfortable with there being some gulf because that's the quality of outcomes has never led to a really good society the really disturbing thing for me here is that we're making a new slave class of some kind. That's how it's presented in the story, though there's, I can only imagine if this is human enough that you or I wouldn't recognize them if they answered the door, but they're recognizable as this euphemistic friend that is really only designed to be friends with people for whatever that means. That's a really, really dark vision in my reading. Yes, we don't need to get too graphic for our listeners here, Brandon, but I mean, this read to me she's naked when she answers the door she this is one of the sort of most explicit descriptions i think of of nudity that we've encountered so far in in wolf and it's hard not to read friend euphemistically as you suggest and not read that this is this is a creature who is designed to look like a human but with enough dna to count as an animal so that you can own the thing you're having sex with yeah it's really troubling and and i think you know wolf goes through 
Wolf goes to great lengths to describe Crane Wesselman as kind of a as a disgusting human being, at least a very, very selfish human being. And I think that as there's all these positive elements of the world that Wolf is writing here, he's not ignoring the fact that there's some real darkness in technological advancement as well. And maybe that's a part of the fable, though I'm I'm not a hundred percent sure. Yeah, something that's just occurred to me, Brandon, while we've been having this conversation is is that you know, of course, a big part of the story is that Sonia is let down that she doesn't end up marrying Crane Wesselman, which she thought was going to happen when they were on their first pair of bridge dates. And I think that as readers, certainly me as a reader, I anticipated this was going to be the outcome of the story when she gets four months later this phone call to come have a romantic dinner at Crane Wesselman's house. But there's nothing romantic about it. And in fact, in some ways, I think, Brandon, now that this is this is what has just occurred to me is that we can actually read this as that what Crane Wesselman does not need from Sonia is sexual companionship. He needs actual friend companionship from her because he's getting sexual companionship from his friend. Yeah, I think that's absolutely right. He needs from her somebody who can share in his interests. And that's all she's for. And I think there's one thing we maybe neglected to bring up, but I'm glad we didn't because it I'm glad we did because it's going to make a big impact, I think, to the, how the story works. One thing we didn't talk about is this strange note where the narrator of the story brings up Harlan Ellison and describes Sonia as an empath. And this is quickly whisked away. It's brought up in the section where they're playing bridge. And what the narrator means is that she's good at cards because she can kind of read Crane Wesselman's emotions and like when he's going to play a trick on bridge or something like that. But I actually think that empathy, and again, um, there's a little bit of sleight of hand being played with definitions here. Empathy and compassion are very close, but I also think that Sonia actually has empathy. And I think we see that with the way she ends up with Kitty at the end for better or worse. Her, her ultimate relationship is in an odd way with Kitty. So let's see if empathy is the thing that really ties everything in this story together. And I want to go through a few examples and then see if we can really tease out the theme and understand what what kind of fable Wolf is telling, if indeed he is telling one. So let's just take it for granted that this story is about empathy in some way. So we have these characterizations. Sonia has empathy. She's described as having empathy in this Harlan Ellison sense, which is like she can read people's emotions. It's Deanna Troy, right? (laughs) Um, She's a betazoid. But I think it goes a little deeper than that in this, that she has real compassion as well. Um, Empathy is not a danger to her like it is for uh, Deanna Troy. Crane Wesselman has no empathy Kitty, our other titular character, is just an animal of some kind. But animals often do have some sort of understanding of their master's emotions. And cats, in particular, will eat their dead masters if they don't get fed. Like, this is a fact. Like, cats will cats think you're a big cat, and they'll just eat you if you die. So I don't know what that says about empathy. It's just, it's just a <laughs> note of the story. But... Um, Kitty also has enough human DNA to, I think, for Sonia to really understand Kitty's experience. We have this lack of empathy that's demonstrated by the 
reduction of everything to economic terms that and this is what characterizes these conservative politicians and this overabundance of empathy characterizes the liberal politicians uh, this is in regards to the universal basic income crane wesselman um who i really want to point out because i think he's the real contrast to sonia here seems to have more this like greater sense of empathy for his pets or these weird pet friends than for people he's an extraordinarily selfish human being and what it reminded me of is there's this show called damages have you seen this show glenn no i don't know what this show is at all okay it stars rose byrne and glenn close um and it's about like unethical lawyers and the villain of season one though they're all kind of villains is ted danson oh (laughs) yeah i'm sold yeah he's incredible and what this i'm I'm coming to a point listeners bear with me this um there's this great scene that's meant to demonstrate how villainous and how evil ted danson is as a result of his selfishness and he's got this personal chef um and he's making an omelet for him and he's sitting out by his pool in his largest state and the chef comes out and gives him the omelet and he doesn't want it. So he's like, you know what? Like, you can, why don't you just have it? Like, you can have this omelet that you cooked for me. And then as the chef is walking away, he's like, actually, you know what? Hold on. You can give it to my dog because he'd probably really like it. And it's this really brilliant scene of, of just shading in the character and their selfishness and how it's possible to just empathize with animals when you can't with other people when you can't understand the needs of other people you understand the needs of the thing dependent on you and it's about power and it's about control and that's what i got from crane wesselman there's a real darkness to his character in this story and i think it's a lack of empathy is really how it's characterized well this is a great reading brandon because this really explains the ending of the the narrative where it ends with sonia hoping that that in the end in his final moments that crane wesselman has understood that she needs money and he has it to give to her that she needs. She's a human. She needs to eat better than she is capable of eating. She needs that more than his weird genetically spliced cat human thing needs a boy cat to have sex with her. Yeah, and... he do, But he doesn't know. He does doesn't he? get it. And she is reduced to making up ownership of a pet in order to get extra food from him when she visits. This is a detail in the story. It's really heartbreaking and sad. And it's a way she's trying to survive in this... I don't know, maybe Wolf really does think it's an economic dystopia as well with universal basic income. But she's reliant upon feigning friendship with this older man. She's another pet of his. And she can be clever in order to get what she needs from him, which is extra meat to eat for her fake dog, because he doesn't understand that people need it. Right. And and there are other details of this peppered throughout where he, he doesn't know she doesn't have a vehicle, never knows it, because in fact, we get a detail here that I also skipped in the recap where we're told explicitly that even though by by Crane Wesselman's invitation, she is now coming to his house once a week. She is still taking the bus, the helicopter bus, because he doesn't know she doesn't have a car um, or a helicar or whatever it is that people are using it this, in, the, in this feature. He doesn't know she doesn't have that. And it has never occurred to him to think that she might not. It has never occurred to him to think that she might be 
poor, that she might not have enough money to eat meat every day. And But what he does empathize with, what he does think about is when she tells him she has a pet that could use leftover meat that he's just going to throw away. Yeah, I think Crane Wesselman is one of the most vile characters Gene Wolfe has written. And it's like not obvious in the story, but like when I stopped to really think about what this guy's up to, and obviously it's aided by that scene in Damages that just like was so vivid for me when I watched it. But it's just that same thing. It's just total, it's evil by way of selfishness. And I just, I think empathy is the thing, or the idea of empathy is the thing that is meant to be the lesson learned in this narrative. I think the story ends with Sonia who kind of inherits Kitty or takes it as takes Kitty as a legacy because Sonia gets me out for Kitty. And I think that's a sign that she's empathizing with this pet and that like they're the same class of person in Crane Wesselman's mind, the same class of creature. They were both for him to use for his own benefit, entertainment and pleasure. And I wonder then if all of this is the case in this reading. If there's any connection then between this and the world kind of world building, particularly with relation to universal basic income that Gene Wolf brings up. That's a really great observation, Brandon. I think that there probably is a relationship there. If we put the enactment of a universal basic income, a government funded uh, universal basic income if we view that through the lens of empathy, you're right. We can see that this is this is legislators, this is this is Congress, this is the president, understanding that people can't make enough money. Not every person can make enough money through working in order to survive, and so every person needs to just have a universal basic income that they can live on. Presumably, this helps them pay for health care or something as well, right, which tends to be the thing that dominates our own political discourse these days. And that in some way, this is an empathetic thing, right? This is empathizing with the plight of people who have been dispossessed by economic powers that are completely out of their control, economic powers in which they have no agency whatsoever. But at the same time, Wolf tells us rather clearly, explicitly here, that it's it's not even that he tells us. He shows us that it's not enough, that, that in fact, conservative politicians and liberal politicians have argued, they have, they have hassled over a price, but that in doing so, both of these political ideologies have really lo- have lost sight of what what this means for an individual such as Sonia and that Wolf here is is showing us a congress that uh, that talks about problems with perhaps out without perhaps understanding them or empathizing with them and then shows us someone trying to make it in this world yeah and it's really interesting that the sorts of things that Wolf points out about Sonia as an individual that the only reason she's able to live on this income is she doesn't smoke, she doesn't do drugs, and that includes drinking alcohol. She only attends free public performances again, like a governmental benefit or like maybe a society benefit or non not for profit, and that with her income, what she's able to do is she can rent two rooms above a garage and she can keep them clean. And I think in the recap, I talked about why Wolf is using this term clean and kind of fixating on how clean her place is. I think it's, it's meant to show 
that she lives with a certain sense of dignity, even though she's just above a survival level in terms of her day-to-day life. So what then do you make of Crane Wesselman's dirtiness, his filth? Yeah, I think it's greed and selfishness. I mean, I think these are your classic, well, I don't know, you'll correct me if I say medieval, but like medieval artistic representation of vices is really what's going on here. And you have a saint and a devil. This is as clear a representation as we can get of it being easier for a camel to pass through the eye of a needle than it is for a rich man to get into heaven. I think we've satisfactorily, for me, kind of discussed what I wanted to get out of this story. I really want to hear from our listeners about this story. Though it's slight and muddled, maybe for a wolf story, I think there's a lot here. And I really want to engage in a broader conversation with our listeners about it. But for now, I think that's going to do it for this episode. I'm Brandon Buddha, And I'm Glenn McDorman. You can find us and our other creative projects at claytemplemedia.com. Head on over to the Clay Temple forums and please let us know what you thought of Sonia Crane-Wesselman and Kitty. I really want to hear from you about this story. Next time, we'll be covering the story The Packer House Method, which you can find in the collection Stories from the Old Hotel. And until then, we greet you and say farewell. <laughs>